Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and today we're gonna to walk you through the July edition of our Natural Wine Club. Uh, today we have a special guest in the studio, uh, and I'll let you introduce yourself and let us know what you do. How's it going, guys? Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on here. Uh, my name is Mike Fonyak. I'm co-owner and head brewer at the Establishment Brewing Company. And we're a young brewery here in Calgary that uh, does a wide variety of styles. Their motto is kind of like, we don't discriminate against beer styles, but we also specialize in um, mixed culture, uh, wild beer that's um, aged in neutral oak uh, wine barrels. So yeah, definitely a lot of crossover for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it is it is fun. And how long have you guys been doing this now? Uh, we're two and a half years old now. So we opened in uh, late, uh, late January, well, two years ago. So um, our mixed culture barrel program is still quite young because we yeah. use all house cultures and they're still developing. But uh, yeah, it's it's been a fun journey so far. I can't wait to see what the future holds. Nice. Uh, cool. Well, we'll jump into the wines and then maybe get some sort of uh, beer perspective on, on natural wine and, and these wines in particular. Um, the first wine that we have today, do you want to start with orange wine or do you want to start with, uh, with pink wine? Ooh, I don't know. I'll let you be the uh, okay. the decider on that. Maybe, yeah, maybe we'll do some rosé first. Uh, so the first wine uh, actually comes from a winery that I worked at. The winery is called Kindeli. Um, they're down in New Zealand, a little town called Nelson that's similar to our version of Nelson. Lots of hippies smoking weed and stuff like that and organic vegetables and whatnot. Um, really great place to go hang out. Uh, their focus is on organic farming and then wines made without any additives, again, same as everything else that we work with. Um, but they've gone full in sort of like the carbon neutral direction where they're now using um, solar panels for their energy. They have like a recycled gray water system. Uh, they are using entirely recycled glass that's made in New Zealand, which is quite the feat. Um, they're using carbon neutral corks uh, that can actually be recycled the same way that paper is recycled uh, and it's made from sugarcane waste um, and they're making really delicious wines. This is a blend of seven different grape varieties I believe. I'm not even going to try and name everything that's in there but it's essentially everything grown on the farm all mixed together. So imagine if you took like uh, you know 10 ounces of every single beer that you guys make and just blend it all together and, and just see sort of what happens. That's, awesome. That's sort of their philosophy here. They're like, yeah, this is a, the complete picture of everything we do. Um, but yeah, I'll pour that for you and we'll, uh, we'll get tasting. That's great. So I had, a, I had a question and I don't know if this is like, maybe I should have done a little bit more preparation for this uh, and, and uh, excuse my ignorance, but um, what's the difference between wild wine and natural wine? Uh, it depends on how you look at it. So wild wine, like I guess is sort of maybe a general statement would probably just mean wild fermented, mm -hmm. um, meaning that they're not adding cultured yeast. Um, there's enough yeast that basically live on the fruit in the vineyard uh, that when you bring it into the winery, crush it, it'll just start fermenting without you having to do anything. Uh, a lot of people use cultured yeast to sort of get certain flavor profiles, as I'm sure we're going to talk a little mm -hmm. bit about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and then natural wine, 
essentially the idea is that you're not adding anything throughout the entire process. So you're not adding yeast nutrients, you're not adding acid, you're not adding sugar, you're not adding flavoring. Uh, and not only that, but you're farming in a way that's uh, as good for the environment as, as agriculture can be. Uh, so growing things like cover crops between your rows of vines, um, using non-synthetic pesticides and herbicides, things like wild herbs and things like that distilled. Um, and so you kind of end up with this sort of like holistic philosophy to winemaking as opposed to just talking about um, a fermentation style. It's about everything from start to finish. Gotcha. That so, makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. It's that kind of be the idea. Um, so yeah, the, one of the things that I had mentioned in, in an email that I want to talk about because this wine tends to have some of these characteristics is reduction. Um, I know that this is something that can come up with, uh, with loggers in particular. Um, but somebody that I was talking to in the beer world again years ago was talking about the idea of like maybe reduction isn't so bad in small amounts it can actually add like complexity um I don't know if you have thoughts on that for your own sort of beer making philosophy but um, yeah so are you specifically referring to like sulfur compounds then? yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah so like I, that's kind of one of the first things I noticed on this wine was just uh, it did have a little bit of sulfur and and in beer making sulfur is just a part of fermentation it happens with certain strains of of yeast are more susceptible to creating sulfur compounds h2s uh, is kind of that rotten egg uh, smell so that's the most common one there are other ones like uh, struck match but in general, kind of low amounts of H2S is, is just typical in beer. And different people have different thresholds on like where you could pick that up, depending on your genetic predisposition. Like our olfactory glands are so sensitive to our genetics. Certain people have a way higher or lower thresholds on certain compounds. Sulfur is definitely one that I think humans in general have a very... Uh, they're very sensitive to it. Like if you think about mercaptan being put into a small amount of mercaptan being put into our natural gas lines as a safety measure, you don't need a lot and you can smell it from really long, from, from far away. So, you know, you have a gas leak, but in this case, the same thing kind of happens with beer where a small amount of sulfur does get produced, um, during fermentation, especially when the fermentation is kind of low and slow. So like low temperature, slow fermentation, um, you don't get a lot of, uh, CO2 being produced and volatilizing that uh, sulfur. So sulfur can get volatilized in carbon dioxide. So during the fermentation when the yeast is eating all the sugars and creating alcohol and carbon dioxide, a lot of that sulfur kind of gets volatilized off and it's gone. But if you have a really long and slow fermentation over a long period of time, say you're not pitching a lot of yeast, so maybe in a natural fermentation mm -hmm. where you're not pitching a massive amount of cultured yeast and you're not getting this massive uh, uh, vigorous fermentation you can have some sulfur that kind of lingers in the beer and it, that, that generally just gets scrubbed out like it's with with wine i don't know how, how it works with wine because there's not carbonation in wine mm -hmm. so but in, in a beer like sometimes you get you know a young lager if you pour it into your glass um you get a lot of that carbon dioxide that's in solution that's what makes beer bubbly uh kind of comes out of solution and a lot of that residual sulfur will just like evaporate like get volatilized like really quickly so you might get a, a bit of a whiff right at the beginning and then your next sip it's already gone totally. but in wine i guess maybe that's not the case it might stick around it's definitely the case yeah okay. yeah yeah it definitely it's it's both things that you said it does stick around longer but it mm -hmm. definitely does volatilize like that's the thing is it is a 
they are volatile sulfur compounds. Yes, absolutely. So yeah. they will eventually combine with air, especially, again, the more you swirl your glass, the more that it ends up getting into the, into the air mm -hmm. as opposed to staying in your glass. Um, in our write-up on this, I even recommended decanting this to try and get right. it as much sort of oxygen as possible. Um, in winemaking, reduction often comes from the yeast struggling. Mm -hmm. So essentially, um, the yeast don't have enough of a particular type of nutrient. Uh, usually that's uh, nitrogen is kind of the thing that they're, they're often lacking. Mm -hmm. And with natural winemakers, they're not adding anything to supplement for those nutrients. So if they have a struggling fermentation, they have to do something else to try and like wake those yeasts up, whether that be increasing the temperature, uh, allowing more oxygen, um, something along those lines in order to like give those yeast a fighting chance. Uh, basically when they're stressed out, that's when they're you know, creating those characteristics. Yeah, that's awesome. And actually, yeah. uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't talk about stressed yeast, but that's, that was absolutely, I wasn't going to go like into the, into technical too deeply, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely nail It's the exact same thing in beer. So free amino yeah. nitrogen is, or fan is basically the available nutrients yeah. for the yeast. And yeah, if, if uh, especially lager yeast, when it's low on that, it, yeah. it will create a lot of sulfur. Totally. And yeah, that totally makes sense with a lower pitch rate with natural or wild fermented wines. Same, we get the same thing in our in our mixed culture beer. Like um, our fermentations are quite vigorous with our house culture, but uh, we are pitching at very low pitch rate, and we're really just hoping we have enough nutrients based on kind of the, the grist or the barley that we use. Mm -hmm. And typically, that is the case. Yeah. Interesting. Barley has quite a bit of nitrogen available, and that's actually part of the maltsters. Um, responsibilities to make sure that during the malting process the raw barley goes through a, kind of like a semi like a partial germination and during that germination it actually um, breaks down some of the protein and releases uh, uh, shorter chain proteins which can be used um, uh, normally if you just let the germination go it would grow into a barley plant yeah we arrest <laughs> that germination halfway and then we, the, the brewer can access those starches and make sugars out of those two things I'm in process but yeah all that is like all that, if, if the barley is, is malted properly, then you will get enough free amino nitrogen. Now, the interesting thing is I'm kind of going on a bit of a rambling uh, rant here, but... Oh, we um, love it. We love it. <laughs> with, with our mixed culture, like our mixed culture beer that we make, we try to do it as, as closely to Belgian tradition as possible. And Belgian brewers actually use a, a large proportion of raw wheat mm. in their grist. And that uh, enables us to get, uh, even though our beers are extremely highly attenuated, so there's almost no sugars left... Uh, the, the higher protein content of the raw wheat actually adds some some texture, some structure to the beer. Mm -hmm. So in, in beer tasting, we call that mouthfeel. Um, and, uh, but with that comes lower free amino nitrogen. So uh, we do experience some sulfur production in, in our uh, wild fermentations as well. So it's, it's parallels run very, very close together. That's totally. Awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. So awesome. Yeah. That, that brings up another really interesting point too. So with... In, in particular, natural winemaking, the whole goal is that you, you grow a grape that has the perfect balance of uh, acidity to sugar mm -hmm. to phenolic compounds, like all these sort of things. You're basically trying to make uh, a grape that if you put it in the right situation, it'll just naturally turn into wine. Mm -hmm. There are extra steps involved in, in the beer process, like you were talking about with raw grains, I assume that means like uh, non-germinated, therefore none of the starches have been turned into sugars that are then fermentable. So what you're adding 
isn't actually fermentable. It's just for flavor. Yeah, I mean, essentially. Yeah, like even the germination process doesn't really create any sugar at that point. That's where the mash comes in, but it just unlocks kind of uh, like. The, the grain starts very steely. It's very, very rough and, and I mean, not rough, but very hard. Like mm -hmm. if you try to bite it, you, it, it'll hurt your teeth. But during the, during, during the malting process, the germination kind of unlocks uh, and, and breaks that down partially. So there's mm -hmm. protein and, and carbohydrate degradation that we're looking for. And that just allows the brewer to basically access those starches. And then those starches uh, with the natural enzymes in the grain, uh, are, are all combined in a mash and at, at a higher temperature around 60 degrees to 70 degrees Celsius the enzymes that are naturally held in the, the malted barley actually break down those starches those barley starches and that's where the sugar is made but um, but in general yeah so there's a certain level of uh, um, like you kind of get what you get with with raw wheat where you're just like this lot of raw wheat just has these properties which is interesting and I know that wine, there's a lot of like terroir associated with wine grapes and everything like mm -hmm. that. It's not really the same with with beer because you don't really get much of a terroir element from the barley. Mm -hmm. But we do definitely, where, where you notice the terroir more is in, in spontaneous fermentation, like in, in Belgium and Cantillon is like a great example where they yeah. spontaneously, I mean, they don't inoculate, but yeah, it spontaneously gets inoculated overnight, the wort, so the sugary barley syrup that gets created, it's called wort, W-O-R-T, mm -hmm. and that gets spontaneously inoculated over a cooling period during the night. Whatever falls into it just naturally starts fermenting it. In our case, we have a house culture that we've kind of been developing, so akin to sourdough starters. So you totally. kind, of, kind of feed your sourdough starter and it kind of evolves, and you don't really know what's in it. Like what's in a sourdough starter, nobody really knows. They just know it makes good sourdough bread. So in our case, that's the same thing. We know it makes really good, um, interesting, wild fermented beer. So we're kind of perpetuating that and, and, uh, and using that in our culture. So in our, in our beer making process, yeah. Do you plan on doing any sort of yeast analysis on that culture, like sending it into like escarpment or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, actually, that's a great question. We're, one of our, um, our brewers, one of our brewers' assistant, his name's Damon, and he's, uh, he's doing a PhD in in, uh, in biology, basically, I won't get into the details, but uh, he has approached us with the th a thought of actually writing a paper on on following our mixed culture and seeing how totally. it changes the diversity of the different microbes that are present there, and doing um, uh, a, like a, a genomic assessment of what's there. It's actually kind of funny because so we're in the process of doing it, and as we get deeper and deeper into it, we're kind of like, do we actually want to know? Because there's a certain type of <laughs> like there's a certain mystery, there's a certain type of uh, kind of, you know, there's a science aspect to, to this style of beer making that, that is important, but then there's also this, the allure of the unknown. And, you know, it's kind of like the clash of art and science where uh, the art part is kind of, you don't know what's going to happen and you have to adjust, you have to blend. So mm -hmm. um, the, the the short answer is yes. And I just gave you kind of the long answer there as well. But yeah, <laughs> we are we are doing that and it, it, is, it is exciting, yeah. When you are um, inoculating, what, what t like what species of yeast is it? Is it Saccharomyces yeast, or is it a blend of different things? Like, are you ever like pitching Brett or anything like that? Or so, yeah, so like there there is un undoubtedly some Saccharomyces in there for mm -hmm. sure, and Saccharomyces is kind of the the brewer's yeast, so it's just really good at just converting sugar into alcohol and CO2. 
And then there's almost definitely some Britannomyces in there. And so those are kind of the, the, the two yeast strains. And then typically in a mixed culture for beer, there's going to be Lactobacillus and Peucoccus as the main acid producers. So as you mentioned before, where I think winemakers are looking towards trying to achieve uh, acid balance, you know, acid and tannins, I think are probably two important components in wine. Um, for us, the acidity, the same thing is true for us, where the acidity is coming from a longer, slower fermentation, where the bacteria is actually producing uh, acidity from, from the residual sugars in the beer over a longer period of time when it ages in our barrels. And it's kind of up to us to control that uh, through blending, really, mm -hmm. uh, because and there's there's some other levers we can pull, like kind of the temperature, how long the beer is in the barrel, and also how many hops we put, because hops actually drive bacterial load down. They're an antibacterial mm -hmm. uh, plant, and so the more hops you put in, the the, the more control you have over your acidity over long term aging. Mm. That said. Uh, sourness and bitterness clash so as we all know hops are they come with bitterness as kind of a baggage um, they have great aroma and flavor and the bitterness is an important aspect in almost all beer because it's really you know with wine i think you have kind of tannins acidity and maybe some sweetness there but with beer you're really trying to balance malt sweetness and bitterness but with mixed culture sour beer we're really trying to balance um, the, the the malty sweetness with acidity, and if you start putting too much bitterness in there, you get clashing elements. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a balancing aspect. It's like the more bitterness you have, the less acidity you have, but then there's a bit of a tipping point where you're like, I I've gone too far. So it's really up to the kind of knowing how your culture, how our culture is evolving. Our culture right now is getting more and more sour over time, and so we have to keep adding hops. Um, but there are ways to add hops without adding bitterness. So mm. it's it's yeah. I mean, I could just talk about this all day, so yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to stop myself here every once in a while. Yeah, no, hey, we, crazy we appreciate it. So I guess like it, it's interesting looking at the two ways uh, in which acidity ends up in, in the, the things that we're drinking. So in, in wine, um, you're farming for acidity and, and picking mm -hmm. based on acidity. Uh, especially with natural winemakers because they can't adjust that acidity afterwards. And basically the only protection that the wine has, yeah. especially when it's still grape juice, is acidity. Like that's the only thing that's protecting it from... Uh, from spoilage. Yeah, much. exactly. Yeah. Any, any type of spoilage, uh, especially things like uh, volatile acidity happening from Acetobacter. Mm -hmm. um, until there ends up being alcohol and more phenolics from... from Basically, all the phenolic characteristics of those bittering elements that you'd find in hops mm -hmm. are also found uh, essentially in the skins of grapes, and they act the exact same way. They're a preservative. Uh, they're an antioxidant. They're antimicrobial, mm -hmm. um, antibacterial. So it's like the uh, the longer you ferment the wine with the skins, um, the more essentially stable it's going to become, the more protected it is. Um, so you're trying to balance out all those things where like, okay, how far can I push it towards this stability by getting like high levels of acid, high levels of phenolic compounds, that bitterness, while it's still being drinkable. Right. Uh, yes. And so it's that, it's that fine line. <laughs> yeah. And I think, uh, I think that's what a lot of people, you know, especially with, with styles like IPAs and, and especially double IPAs, where you're like, okay, how far can we take this so that it's it's still drinkable and still true to style and still 
pleasing because yeah. I think that's ultimately the point of making all these beverages is not just for them to be um, you know esoteric or just like a like an intellectual game mm-hmm. uh, it's got to be about deliciousness in, in the end so I feel like it's it's really interesting to see how uh, you know sort of the different methodologies between wine and beer. So. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's actually so conventional beer making, like modern beer making and stainless steel tanks. I mean, we do that at the brewery as well. We put mm-hmm. those beers in cans, but the, the, the mixed culture, the wild beers that we make, those exclusively go in bottles. And the, the processes are so much different where the recipe is so much more important uh, in creating you know, an IPA because you have a cultured yeast, you know exactly what that yeast is going to do. And the rest is up to the brewer to make sure that you, know, you strive balance between the amount of malt, the amount of hops, the attenuation, but with with our uh, barrel program, with our um, wild program, it's really up to the wild yeast to kind of dictate what's gonna happen. And like I mentioned before, there's a little bit of levers the brewer can pull, but at the end of the day, so much is so much is just balanced at the end with blending. So we have a lot, we have about 100 barrels at our brewery uh, filled with beer, and we really don't have much control. My business partner, Dave, has has a hilarious analogy. It's kind of like pushing a shopping cart with a broken wheel. It's like, you know, your barrels, you don't know what they're going to do. And at the end of the day, you need to find balance. And you, I think you hit the nail on the head when, when you can make these esoteric styles, you can try some crazy stuff. But at the end of the day, I think it's just balance. Balance is key. Balance is what, what leads to drinkability and beer is about drinkability. So I think mm-hmm. a beer that is unbalanced, um, in my opinion, it just, isn't good and a, a beer that's balanced doesn't even matter how it tastes as long as it has balance it'll be drinkable yeah as long as it's well fermented etc but totally. yeah yeah for sure yeah um so jumping into our second wine here uh do a little bit of orange wine so um conventional white wines are fermented just with grape juice mm-hmm. versus orange wines are fermented with the grape juice and the grape skins so the same way that you'd make a red wine uh, the skins are where you find all those phenolic compounds, um, but also a handful of different aromatic compounds. 60% of a grape's flavor is actually in the skins. So with white wine, you're basically immediately getting rid of 60% of the potential for flavor. Again, some of those flavors aren't for everybody, so there's a reason to get rid of them, um, but it's an interesting style nonetheless. Um, this is coming from the Hermit Ram. So this is our second wine from New Zealand. We decided to do back-to-back New Zealand wines this time. Um, the first wine was from Nelson. This wine is coming from North Canterbury, um, which is a little bit further south than, than Nelson is, kind of around where Christchurch is on the, on the South Island in New Zealand. Um, you have a wide variety of soils here, which really influence the flavors of the wines. They tend to be very intense uh, versus the wines from Nelson, I find um, are always quite soft, quite you know, playful versus these are more sort of serious, stoic wines, very stony. Um, but at the same time, this is like outlandishly tropical. Uh, it's made from Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand has particular flavors associated with it, but it actually comes mostly from the yeast and the technique that they're using to make those wines, not actually from there being something unique about the the terroir or the environment in which the grapes are grown. So this is actually maybe more of a true representation of what New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc would actually taste like without all those heavy manipulations. Um, It's a style that I really like. Uh, The previous two years, we actually didn't even get an allocation of this wine. Um, In fact, the the rosé that we had before this, we used uh, 95% of our 
annual allocation for the wine club. So people listening to this podcast are going to be essentially the only people who will get to drink that wine. Uh, and then this wine, uh, again, we didn't get an allocation in, in last year or the year before that. And then the year before that, we got like eight cases. Uh, and so it's been a long time since we've been able to drink this wine, but we figured we'd celebrate by, by putting it in the club. Um, this kind of brings up like an interesting, I don't know, point, I guess, uh, with the idea of these sort of like regional styles of beer um, being more influenced by tradition rather than with a lot of the wines, you're sort of more dictated by the weather, essentially, um, and by the climate and that sort of thing. Um, do you think that there's potential for there to be like uh, an Alberta style of beer, like something we're known for. Um, do we have that sort of beer culture yet? I know it's only been really legal to brew anything smaller than yeah. massive amounts of beer <laughs> for a couple of years. Yeah, it, yeah but, it, uh, definitely. No, that's a really that's a really good question, and and I think first of all, I think Alberta is is a really great place for beer making. We have great water here. We have a lot of barley. We can grow hops here. The climate is correct for hops. I mean, some people have them in their backyard, kind of indigenous hop plants that are just growing. Um, so the, you know, it's kind of an intersection of, of many, many things that make it a place for good beer, uh, just because of the ingredients are inherently just naturally found here. But that said, I don't think we really have anything yet that stands out as, as true kind of, Alberta or maybe even Western Canadian style of beer. Hmm. Um, I know you did mention weather and I kind of wanted to touch on that because I just had an idea. In in Belgium, with the spontaneous uh, wild beer fermentation breweries like Cantillon, I mentioned them before, um, they're basically just the widest, like the, most most beer drinkers know Cantillon, so I'm just using that term or the, that, that name, but... And um, it's delicious. So. It's amazing, yeah. It's like... Uh, and they're very seasonal like they can only brew in the winter months and the reason why they're only brewing in the winter months is because uh, they're actually just really trying to control volatile acidity there's acetobacter in the air in the summer months and there's since they're spontaneously inoculating their work with whatever's kind of floating around in the air they basically can only brew in the winter unfortunately the winter seasons are getting a little shorter so that's uh, it's it's tricky for them but uh, uh, I, I don't know if anybody really i mean in alberta like there's a lot of great breweries here and, and alberta won a lot of awards in the canadian brewing awards last year uh so i think there's there's some potential for for some future styles that come out that maybe you know put us on the map mm -hmm. uh right now i i don't think there's really anything particularly terroir-esque about alberta that will like that defines that yet but yeah. who knows there's there's a lot of potential yeah yeah i remember talking to um i want to say is Graham from Toolshed back mm -hmm. in the day, and he was talking a lot about how um, he's he's basically going around like advocating for the local farmers, being like, "Hey, like we grow the best, like some of the best grain in the world." Yeah. Um, let alone, you know, just Canada or just North America. Like we, we legitimately have a great climate and and you know good strains and good soils and whatever else is required for for growing grains. Um, and so although like I, there obviously hasn't been too much experimentation with, um, with the idea of terroir and beer, but I, I think, you know, a lot of our producers are, are practicing permaculture. So they're growing things between the vines in order to feed the soil right. and create a more balanced ecosystem. Um, and one of those producers is growing uh, rye 
um, einkorn and uh, Pannonian barley uh, between the rows of vines, and they make that into a beer. It's the world's only uh, certified biodynamic beer, uh, and they're growing the hops in the same place. And again, the beer is, the beer is fine. It's great. Yeah, it's yeah. delicious. It's, it's not really the most interesting thing of all time, but I'd be curious to taste you know, barley grown in one part of Alberta versus mm-hmm. barley grown in another part of Alberta, both made the exact same way, but see if there ends up being a, a flavor profile difference between the two of them. Yeah, um, for sure. I, I, yeah. I have no doubt that there, there probably would be, honestly. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. That's a really interesting idea. Um, uh, before I lose this train of thought, but man, that's a lot of gooseberry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Def- <laughs> definitely gooseberry. gooseberry. And yeah. it's, it's actually funny because um, there is so... In, in beer brewing, uh, New Zealand hops are very, very flavorful as well. Like mm-hmm. they're very much, um, you know, kind of tropical in nature and very unique. And, and there is some, I get, there must be something in the soil because you can have, you can take a cascade plant and you can just, the standard American sea hop is just citrusy. You plant yeah. it in New Zealand and you grow it there, completely different. So yeah. Um, I know you mentioned that's not necessarily the case with some of the, the grape varieties, or maybe I misunderstood there, but um, there is a the hop called Nelson Sauvin that is very much like uh, gooseberry forward. Totally. And extremely aromatic. Yeah. And highly sought after. And uh, the moment I put my nose in, in this glass, I was like, the first thing I got was just gooseberry. And it's, yeah. It's really nice. And, and just such a bright aroma and so fruity. This does smell like yeah. a New Zealand style IPA, frankly. Like, yeah, it's like, it kind of does. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's, I'm not surprised how aromatic that actually, that is. And, yeah. And yeah, it's it's awesome. Yeah, he does a really good job. When I was working in New Zealand, uh, right around the corner from us was a hop farm. And uh, again, just like wildly aromatic little things. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's amazing. But um, one of the things like to completely speculate with absolutely no basis on the speculation uh, well, I guess there's some bases. So New Zealand is famous for having really high levels of UV mm-hmm. um, compared to a lot of other places in the world. And that in places like uh, North Canterbury basically results in uh, thicker grape skins. So essentially the grapes are trying to protect themselves from, from UV light by growing thicker skins. Oh. Um, it creates a lot more intensity of phenolics and things like anthocyanins and, and all these other little bits. Um, and I'd be curious to know if hops grown in higher UV conditions, maybe that's also why they're creating these like outlandish flavors, is, is literally as a defense mechanism against these high levels of UV. Because um, a lot of plants create bitter compounds when they're sort of exposed mm-hmm. to those sort of things. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd be super curious. And it's, it's interesting too, looking at the aromatic compounds that you find in wines versus uh, beers in the sense of things like, uh, like you mentioned, Mercaptan, uh, you know, you can end up with Mercaptan compounds in, in wine, for instance. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if I've ever experienced it in beer per se, nor if I want to, um, but things like thiols, mm-hmm. uh, again, often coming from, well, exclusively coming from, from the fermentation process. So in your beers that you are inoculating, um, what encourages you to choose certain yeasts over other yeasts um yeah so that yeah yeah, there's oh man there's a lot so yeast in general i think is the most important part of beer like um the the work creation process like the recipe development you can have the best process and the best recipe 
ever. And then if you mess up the fermentation, the beer is undrinkable. But the opposite, you could have a mediocre recipe with okay process on the hot side, sort of, sort of like where you create the sugars, you create the wort, you know, you add the hops to the boil. Um, you can have, um, you know, everything is just absolutely, uh, you know, kind of like mediocre on that side. And then you have the greatest fermentation ever with uh, a well-selected yeast strain for proper flavor profile. And, and you took care of the yeast and you have a beer that's completely fine and drinkable. So uh, I think fermentation is so key. And so selection of yeast from, from our cultured beer. So, so uh, this is, we're not talking about the, the mixed culture stuff that we do, but the actual, you know, single single strain of yeast uh it, it, it is very important and i know you you mentioned thiols and, and you mentioned a couple of things that i would love to talk about a little bit more later but there is there's a lot of new science coming out um in in beer brewing that's actually coming from the wine industry and this is all mm. so new and relevant and, and you talk to winemakers and they're like we've been doing this for for like decades like you guys are <laughs> like welcome to the party um thiols are a big one you know biotransformation so like uh, glycosidic, glycosidic uh bound aromatic compounds mm. uh that that certain yeasts are able to kind of cleave those glycosidic bonds and release uh flavor and aroma compounds that's actually a very recent development and certain yeast strains are able to do that certain yeast strains are not now that now they're finding out that there's certain yeast strains that can actually help release some thiols and thiols are extremely they're also a sulfur compound but they're you know the 4mmp and 3mh and 3mha in small amounts are are extremely uh tropical totally tropical yeah, aromatic like i mean you guava, probably, passion yeah, fruit, passion fruit, exactly like, black black currant and, yeah and, box and things, tree like all those yeah sort of, you're like what is that flavor even i know right <laughs> <laughs> and and Brewers are recently figuring out that you know these uh, aroma pre- like these aroma uh, compounds are present in hops, and, and 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 some of them are present in malt, and you know there's there's ways to access those. Currently, uh, a lot of it is just like exogenous enzyme additions, so definitely not like the the you know the natural wine route in that yeah. case. But um, but there are some wild yeast strains that have like glycosidic activity. Uh, Britannomyces is extremely good at cleaving glycosidic bonds and releasing aroma, aroma uh, uh, compounds that you didn't even think existed. It just takes takes time. So, like in our mixed culture beer, uh, you know, it sits in a long time in the barrel, and you know, certain maybe there's a bread strain in there. I don't know. We don't know what's in our culture yet, but there's some bread strains in there that just create insanely tropical aromas. Like you, you smell this beer, and it's like. This is, it's just like stone fruit and we mm-hmm. didn't add any fruit to it. It's just yeah. the Britannomyces is just unlocking these like flavor compounds. And yeah, so yeast is like, yeast is everything. Yeast yeah. is like, yeast selection is everything. It's That's awesome. the stuff that gets me yeah. way more excited is that, is beers that aren't flavored with fruit that taste like fruit. Like that's the yeah. stuff that I get really excited about because you're talking about, like you were talking about like with these flavor precursors, you're mm-hmm. like this thing that could be turned into the flavor of passion fruit was already in that grain. Yeah. That's wild to me. Mm-hmm. They're like, it was in that grain and then through like a yeast basically like eating it and then out the other side of that yeast came passion fruit yeah. flavor. Yep. You're like, that's it's wild insane. to me. Yeah. It's way more exciting than just adding passion fruit to beer. Not oh, that I'm like against that either, <laughs> but to me, like just from an intellectual perspective and from a flavor perspective, frankly, like the beers that I've had that that you know non-fruited sour beers that i've had that have been 
they've been the most compelling beers that I've ever tasted. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can be a wide variety of styles. They can be that super funky, like really Brett Ford, yeah. like we always call it the urinal puck beer. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, urinal puck. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Where it's this like, yeah, kind of acrid quality, but you're yeah. like at the same time, like really enthusiastic about it. But then on the other side where you get these like, you know, uh, like Sour Patch Kids, like kind of notes and things like that. And, and me, again, I, I just find those intellectually as exciting as I find them delicious. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Sour Patch Kids because I, um, so we've slowly been, like, at first we started with, you know, we, we were buying lab cultures, we were buying from Scarpman Labs, you know, Britannomyces, or, I, I was kind of like harvesting dregs from bottles of beers that I really loved, like, mm. uh, you know, Rare Barrel down in, in Burton, California, um, Cantillon, obviously, Jester King, um, basically just making benchtop trials of all these cultures that are still alive in the bottles of these, of these uh, kind of prominent uh, mixed culture and, and wild beer producers and, and then adding them to our barrels and, and using that as kind of starters for, uh, for hopefully something, you know, that would turn out. And eventually we kind of lost track uh, and intentionally almost. Like we wanted to create a house culture that we really didn't know where it came from and it kind of created this like uh, microclimate within our brewery where it's it's kind of you know evolving with us and we don't really we're not trying to push it in any one direction but recently we've been really realizing that a lot of our barrels uh uh well since, sorry i'm gonna back up a little bit since then we've actually just found a couple barrels that are just like so good so we've been just reusing that that mixed culture and, and kind of using them as kind of our sourdough starter hmm. in quotations uh, perpetuating that and we've been noticing that it's developing like you, you mentioned sour patch kids it's developing like a rocket candy thing oh yeah i don't even know where it's coming from totally and, and there's no research about it and and i've been looking around and th- there's some uh mixed culture sour beer producers that are noticing this as well and they're kind of like i don't know nobody knows what it is yeah <laughs> but it's i'm happy it's there and we're and that's i guess that's all i can say is i'm happy it's there it's Talk. very unique, and where it came from, there's no, there's, you know, we didn't, we definitely didn't put any uh, rockets in our beer, <laughs> uh, so and it's just all mixed culture. It's all wild yeast and bacteria, yeah. the interactions that are happening. That it's kind of a black box, and we don't really know. And we, we will soon find out with with you know some of these projects we're doing with writing a, a paper on this. But uh, at the same time, it's like it's kind of nice not to know. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we we only work with we only import one brewery. We import like. 50 different wineries but there's there's only one brewery so far that's been like the one that we really wanted to work with and mm-hmm. it, was, it was burdock oh yeah um, they're awesome yeah they use a lot of uh wine and pumice and totally yeah. so it kind of made sense for our portfolio like yeah. there's only a handful of brewers in the world that were like oh we really love that in the portfolio yeah. and they from the start were kind of like the ones that we wanted to to work with and they just released um one called fm 3000 which was um again just sort of a saison but brewed in uh 2018 and then just chilled in barrels since then and they're like that's all we did to it and it's crazy and super sour patch kids and super rockets candy that's and awesome. like yeah i'm like i don't understand how this exists yeah. but i'm i'm happy about it nonetheless yeah. but um, the magic of mixed culture the magic of wild beer yeah, yeah exactly um Cool. Well, I'll talk about the last wine here quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is made by Franz Wenninger. Uh, Franz Wenninger is in Austria. Um, he's in Bergenland, which is just south of uh, just south of Vienna. Uh, he's about an hour and a half away from uh, from Vienna. Um, 
making really beautiful biodynamic wines. So his his vineyard is essentially like a self-sustaining permaculture. Uh, Between the rows of vines, he has a handful of different things growing, uh, all with the goal of revitalizing the soil. Um, This idea of regenerative agriculture, where not only are you... um, you know, being environmentally sustainable, but you're actually getting life and nutrients back into the soil for, you know, future generations, or hopefully just so that we can continue drinking this wine for like the next hundred years or so, uh, at the very least. Um, this is a wine that we just started importing. Uh, we've always worked with Franz Wenninger, like almost right from the start, but we haven't imported this particular wine. And the reason for that is that there was actually like a lot of competition for uh, Blau Frankish, uh, which is the name of the grape variety, at this price point. And uh, essentially, we tasted it again and we're like, there's no reason why we should not be importing this. It's, it's again, not to throw shade at everybody, but it's like, it's the best version of this wine for this price point on the market. And so we're like, screw it, I don't care if there's competition. And people have gone wild for it. Uh, for good reason. It's, it's honestly so incredibly compelling and delicious. It speaks to what it is. Um, this is from, I can't remember how many different plots, but like dozens of different uh, little vineyard plots all around this region, uh, all blended together to make sort of maybe more of a snapshot of the entire region as opposed to like a single plot. Um, all wild fermented, fermented on skins for, um, you know, a short period of time, not going super long on this. Um, then aged in neutral barrels, um, so you're not getting any like oak influence necessarily, just flavors from the actual grapes themselves. Um, at their winery, they tend to always have like a little hint of Britannomyces, um, which comes through a little bit differently in wine than it does in, in beer. In wine, it tends to come across more as, as funk versus most of the, the beers that I've had that have been fermented with at least a little bit of Brett tend to create a lot fruitier characteristics. I remember reading about why that was one time, whether it was anaerobic versus aerobic fermentation and either way, but their Brett usually comes across as sort of this spicy, savory, almost leathery kind of quality. Um, but it's backed up by tons of blue fruit, really plummy, um, really plush style, sitting at 12.5% alcohol, which is uh, quite low for a red wine that's this saturated. But again, it's not shy on flavor. Um, I think we see this a lot happening in the beer industry as well, where it's like, at one point there was, a, it seemed like the only way to get more flavor was more alcohol, uh, versus now it seems to be like a push the opposite direction, being like, how much flavor can we get into a beer that's only, uh, you know, four and a half percent alcohol or four percent alcohol, or, you know, even in that five range where it's like, we don't want to sacrifice intensity or complexity, but we do want to bring back some of the drinkability um, of some of these styles. I don't know if you can speak to that from uh, from your own perspective. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, you know, session beers are, it's kind of the term, like a beer that is flavorful uh, and, and but yet also you can, you know, have a couple and, and still be functional in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, session beers, it's, it's, it's a thing. And, um, unfortunately there's still a little bit of, um, uh, a little bit of education, I think consumer education that, that needs to happen in, in the sense that, you know, some people see, you know, they, they see 4% or three and a half percent and they kind of recognize that as kind of watery because yeah. it, it kind of, it runs, it runs, the, the parallels kind of run alongside of like Anheuser-Busch and, you know, Coors Light and all that stuff. So I think that, um, 
that brewers love session beers. Like honestly, at, at our brewery, we we make a, a, a Czech pale lager, so very very traditionally made uh, Czech lager. We we serve it on a side full tap that we ordered from the Czech Republic, and it's just yeah, we went all out on that one. But that is like the number one. Like when when you look at like uh, Natasha or Graham or Damon in the back, whenever they're having you know their post work drink, it's always it's always the low alcohol lager. Like yeah. it has a ton of flavor, a ton of malt flavor, lots of hops. But it's balanced, super drinkable, and just like very refreshing. I think it's like that's like really the true essence of 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 where beer came from. You know, it was like you know saisons were were these light, um, sessionable beers that that you can you can drink while you're working out in the field, right? Mm-hmm. And and they've kind of the, the craft beer industry has really been pushing towards beers that wow people. Like if you crack a can or a bottle open and you don't immediately you you're not hit with like a tidal wave of you know the juiciest, hoppiest most intense flavors you've ever had it's kind of like if that beer didn't wow you immediately you know it's like is it even worth drinking but i think it's slowly going back to uh you know beer is you know beer is all about you know enjoying a couple beers with uh with conversation around around the table or um and i think that's that's really important i'm glad glad to see it come back and 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 people really you know appreciating it a little bit more because there and then there's a certain there's a certain um, challenge to making a beer that is very light. You don't have a lot of uh, big, bold flavors to hide behind, so it needs to be technically done extremely well. And so I think a lot of brewers respect respect light beers, uh, session beers, uh, if they're done well, because you know they're delicate, they're balanced, they're nuanced, and that's where the beauty comes from, rather than massive, bold flavors. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, we see a lot of the same thing in the wine industry as well, where it's like, it's always such a struggle to get people to drink Riesling, for instance. And uh, I love Riesling. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's always so funny though, because they see like, oh, 8% alcohol, a little bit sweet. They're like, oh, why would you want to drink that? And like, have you ever worked in a restaurant? Like, that's all you want at the end of a shift. You don't want to drink a, you know, a glass of like 15% alcohol, like hot red wine. You want like the coldest, lowest alcohol, like crushable glass of wine, but you still want all that complexity. You still want all the attention to detail. Um, I remember a couple years ago going to um, uh, Luxus uh, is the name of this like beer bar in, in Brooklyn um, that was uh, owned by like Evil Twin slash that group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I remember they had um, the bikini beer on tap and it was like one and a half percent That's alcohol. Amazing. <laughs> and uh, this is like, you know, coming into a, a restaurant where I'm like, you know, we plan on doing a tasting menu, but I'm coming in hot. I'm like, okay. I already drank a lot of wine with dinner, well, first dinner, I guess. Uh, and like, okay, I need something to like reset the palate, you know, settle down. I don't want to be like more drunk now. That's not the goal, but I keep on, I want to keep tasting things. And so a beer on tap, that's like one and a half percent alcohol. I'm like, I'm literally sobering up as I drink this yeah. yet. I can continue, uh, continue sipping some beers. So yeah, it's, it's net alcohol negative. Basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Over the course of like, however long it takes you to drink mm-hmm. it, you're like, feeling great now ready for uh, ready for second dinner for yeah, sure that was awesome yeah um i feel like that's most of the things that we had to discuss over the course of this mm-hmm. um any sort of like closing remarks thoughts uh, i really enjoyed every single wine that was on the table today nice um, i know i didn't really get a chance to talk too much about them i didn't really want to kind of embarrass myself like with the wrong uh the wrong terms but i i was yeah this one really this last one, I just immediately I just wanted to say like juicy, like 
really yeah like vibrant fruity and uh but just, and really balanced too like the acidity isn't super high on it and it's mm-hmm. not like it's not there's not a lot of tannins and i don't really know this grape varietal that well and but it was just like the balance was just awesome and uh i just loved it yeah aromas um yeah i mean i just love every, every wine on the table today was really great so i appreciate that yeah Hey, no, happy, always happy to share. I feel like red wine is really interesting for beer drinkers because it is so different. Like the, mm-hmm. both the white and the rosé, like there's definitely parallels um, with beer styles, I'd say. Versus with red wine, like I don't think that there is a, a direct like correlation between really any of these flavors unless you're looking at a, a fruited beer um, or something aged in like red wine barrel. But even then, there's still going to be like lighter, fresher in comparison to, to this. So it's interesting to, uh, I, I always like getting, uh, you know, people who work in the beer industry, getting their sort of opinion on red wines in particular. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's always very interesting seeing what, what flavor descriptors they come up with. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for having me on. This has been great. And uh, if you don't mind, I'll do a quick shameless plug for the brewery real quick. Yeah, please yeah, do. That's yeah, that's, that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. So we're, uh, if you haven't been down, we have a tap room and, and brewery uh, in the Manchester industrial area. So just uh, on 42nd and McLeod, so just south of the Stampede Grounds, just north of, uh, of Chinook Center in that area there, just off McLeod. And yeah, we have a nice tap room there and we brew all our beer on site. We have over about 100 uh, neutral oak red wine barrels where we have our mixed culture sour beer and in and we also do you know conventional beer in our stainless steel tanks so usually I don't know like nine beers on tap it's kind of ridiculous to keep up but um, but yeah I encourage you guys to come down and, and stop by and in, in about mid-July we're we're launching uh, our seller program so we're actually going to be doing bottle service so we have uh, a bunch of our old releases from uh, from Actually, all of our releases that we've done so far, we've kind of reserved some some cellar bottles, and we're gonna be uh, you're gonna be able to come by and, and taste those. And and I, I love drawing parallels to wine with with uh, the the wild beer. So um, you might you might if you're not a big beer person, you might maybe find something that's like a little interesting in, in the mixed culture side. So definitely, yeah. And I think especially with like coming from the natural wine world, there's so many more correlations between the flavors that you'd find in natural wines than that you often find in the beer as well. Um, we also have lots of listeners that are up in Edmonton down Lethbridge. So if you're coming up for the day, uh, it's definitely worth, uh, worth stopping in, uh, lots of fun things to do in that area too. There's like the bouldering gym called Boulder conveniently, yeah, uh, right awesome. down the street. So go do there's a another brewery right next door to us, Annex Brewing Company. They're a great totally. friends and, and, uh, we encourage, you know, there's a bunch of other breweries just down the street. And so bring your bike down on a nice Sunday or Saturday and bike around and try some local beers. It's great. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. Well, if anybody has any additional questions, you can feel free to send me an email. My email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. You can also reach out to us on Instagram or however is most convenient for you. Uh, And I'll be uh, linking your guys' social media to uh, the newsletter and whatnot as well. Uh, So definitely give them a follow. And and, uh, yeah, thanks so much for being here, guys. Thank you.